thanks everyone for coming on this hot night. And uh, I suppose people will be wandering in slowly. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and I'll be monitoring the panel. And uh, I'll introduce them each as they give presentations. And corruption, enormous topic. But it's encapsulated in a New Yorker cartoon where a public or private individual is sitting at his desk talking to a colleague and he says, he's saying, I'd love to retire and spend more time with my family, but I feel there's so much more that I can skim off the top. And that, and that kind of says it at any rate. Uh, the definition of corruption, which I'm sure you all know, I use the Transparency International one since we have a representative here, Zoe Reiter, it states that the abuse, it's the abuse of entrusted power for private gain. And by the way, TI's Transparency International's declaration against corruption is out on the table. It's also on the internet, which I suggest you sign. There are also copies of a recent book, thanks to Ken Hurwitz from the Open Society, on uh, legal remedies for grand corruption. And if you look on gov.uk, there's a collection of essays which uh, Jerome gave to me against corruption. Lots of people, Christian Lagarde, the head of the World Bank. The World Bank refers to the cancer of corruption, and that's used a lot for corruption, and says it's the abuse of public or corporate office for private gain. And corruption has many forms, as you all know. Bribery, extortion, theft, uh, pillage, war, pillage crimes, which are uh, theft of natural resources, usually in a war crime setting. But all of these deplete the economy. They diminish democracy. They deprive citizens of services, food, jobs, and foment conflict and terrorism, because a lot of the, the monies go to buying arms. There are conventions and laws to fight corruption, such as the UN Convention Against Corruption that covers prevention, criminalization, and asset recovery. There's the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention, uh, the EU Convention, the, uh, and in the US we have the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the Magnitsky Act, which provides for sanctions, and all of the countries have their acts, the UK, uh, Russia, China, Brazil, which has troubles of its own. The problem, of course, is identifying the corruption and then uh, trying to get prosecution on it. Uh, to be, but our panelists will tell us a lot more about it. To begin with, I'd like to introduce Zoe Reiter, who's with Transparency International and represents it in the United States. And TI, by the way, puts out a Corruption Perceptions Index every year. 
and it shows the continued failure of many countries to combat corruption is contributing to a crisis in democracy. Prior to TI, Zoe was program manager and project lead on multiple international anti-corruption initiatives in Latin America and globally. And she works with partners across the globe and she's worked to ensure strong public accountability in the delivery of basic services and infrastructure. And she led the design and implementation of a project with Interpol and the UN Office of Drugs and Crime to make criminal justice systems more accountable to the people they're supposed to serve. She also oversaw TI's regional program with 19 chapters in the Americas focusing on issues including citizen security, economic equality, and open governance. A lot. I've been busy. Yes, <laughs> yes. And Zoe, to begin with, how does TI fight corruption? What are some of the challenges? And since it celebrated 25 years in operation last year, what were the takeaways from that experience? So, um, <laughs> where to begin on that one? Yes. <laughs> um, Transparency International has been around for 25 years. Can I just show of hands, how many of you know of Transparency International? Very good. You should all know, though, because you're all lawyers, right? Um, and when it got started, I should just say, so we're an international network, more than anything, um, of over 100 organizations, independent, net, what we call national chapters that are local to the country. Um, and they affiliate with us, and we accredit them every three years based on their governance and their um, sort of relevance in the country in terms of tackling corruption. Um, so that's a, a broad swath of, 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 of the globe. Um, and each, because each chapter is basically an independent NGO, they all tackle corruption differently. Um, some just sort of like to raise awareness, where the others do investigations, very hard-hitting investigations. Um, what we have learned over the past 25 years is you really have to do a few things. One is you have to strengthen the capacity of civil society to engage those people who are most affected by corruption to come forward. Um, so we have developed what we call a legal, it's the Advocacy and Legal Aid Center, and it's basically an anti, it's a corruption legal aid center. Um, well, you're going to have one here in the U.S. soon, so uh, we'll start looking for lawyers soon. Um, that gives victims and witnesses of corruption, whistleblowers, a safe place to come forward. That information has led to the downfall of presidents all around the world. And it's often information that we don't even publicize. So the way in which we used to operate, which was a raising awareness of the problem, is sort of less germane to how we work now. Now we're really trying to um, really tackle grand corruption, and I'm going to ask Ken to do a definition of that later, um, and, and to look at the means in which uh, sort of the seriously corrupt work across borders to both steal from their people, scrub their ill-gotten gains, and then make profit from that. And the primary strategy for Transparency International globally um, these days is to really push for one thing, and that is beneficial ownership transparency. 
So for us, I mean, you can take a look at a World Bank study from, I think, 2011, and it was a study done with um, the UN Office of Drugs and Crime. 85% of the grand corruption cases uh, used anonymous companies to hide their, hide their profits and launder money. That, the majority of those were in the United States is very concerning and should be concerning to the American Bar Association. So I do hope that you all really um, pay attention to all the advocacy that we are doing together with the FAT Coalition to push legislation in the United States to advance beneficial ownership transparency. Right now, the American Bar Association's official position does not support it, um, but we're hoping that that's going to change shortly. Uh, we do believe that all the evidence is in favor because the way in which the, the major corrupt are able to extract resources, to extract um, ill-gotten gains is through anonymous companies. So that's our number one strategy, that's our number two strategy, and that's our number three strategy. Um, and I'm happy to go into more detail about that going forward. Um, so just to say, over the past 20 years, we learned that raising awareness is not enough. Most people know about corruption. Um, but how you tackle it is fundamental, and giving people the means to come forward in the sense that by coming forward, things can get better is critical, and really understanding the way in which dirty money flows across borders and uh, territorializes, whether it's through real estate or luxury goods, is now becoming our primary focus. Thanks very much. And, uh, and uh, speaking of finding the dirty money, we're pleased to have... That's a good segue. Uh, well, okay, well, you mentioned it. April Dennis, who's the head of anti-money laundering modeling at Societe Generale Americas. She's also the program manager of the anti-money laundering surveillance project. She speaks here, by the way, on her own behalf and not for or on behalf of Societe Generale. Prior to her present position, she worked at Standard Chartered Bank as the head of Financial Crime Compliance Americas and Quality Insurance, which included programs for customer due diligence, transaction monitoring, investigations, sanctions, anti-bribery, and corruption. She also spent over 15 years at UBS focused on anti-money laundering compliance. She, of course, is registered with the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and she maintains her licenses for investment advisors and securities agents. And you can explain to the audience, as you've been so helpful to me, uh, what controls financial institutions have in place to fight corruption, and also tell them about the anti-money laundering post-transaction monitoring, and uh, as Zoe mentioned, finding the beneficial ownership. There you can have three more days to go into it. Okay. Um, thank you for that introduction. Um, just as a quick tidbit, there is draft bipartisan legislation titled the Illicit Cash Act, which is trying to focus on um, allowing uh, shell companies to be more transparent to identifying the beneficial owners. Um, and we can talk more about beneficial ownership uh, throughout the presentation today. 
Um, but I think with an anti-bribery and corruption program, um, there are many elements and aspects to it um, in order to be effective. There's definitely no one-size-fits-all solution. And what's unique about an anti-bribery and corruption program is you have to look inward at your employees as well as outward to your, to your customers. Um, and, it's, and it's interesting in that the internal component, the, the key aspect is making sure you have a really strong governance in place. Um, and the tone in the t from the top is, is critical. So you want to make sure that your, your board and your CEO and your senior management are communicating the values and principles of, of your firm and that they are communicating a zero tolerance for bribery and corruption. Um, throughout the organization, they develop policies and procedures for the, for the firm to follow, and it provides the direction that the organization will be taking. Uh, there's a lot of training that's involved. They, they um, offer annual training to their employees, which is mandatory from an anti-barber corruption and anti-money laundering perspective. And then there's also targeted training that's offered to our employees based on their um, job responsibilities, where they may have um, more they, they're more likely to encounter potential bribery or corruption. Through the training, they're also going to advise employees on how to escalate any type of uh, suspicions or concerns around bribery or corruption. And if someone's not comfortable with, with going through the escalation channel to the head of compliance or another senior manager, there's a whistleblowing policy and that allows for um, employees to contact a hotline and to um, disclose their allegation with complete confidentiality. That also then sparks an in independent investigation that will occur on any type of allegation. Um, those could also lead to um, a result of anything from discipline to an employee to termination of an employee and at times regulatory reporting. So how are employees monitored by their employers for, for potentially corrupt activity? So we focus on gifts and entertainment. So we have um, a number of employees who are trying to get business for our bank or the firm or financial institution. And those type of expenses are closely monitored, especially if there's any type of government official involvement we want to make sure that um, the gift and entertainment is not in close proximity to any type of deal or to win business or to retain business or to get, get upcoming potential business. Um, also employees, their donations and sponsorships are monitored. So we're required to uh, disclose our donations um, because we want to make sure that the um, they are not being used as a way to uh, bribe somebody. They want to make sure that the donation is reasonable and it's not being directed by a government, government official or a customer or a potential customer. There's also an aspect of monitoring around political contributions. Um, there's a lot of uh, pay-to-play laws out there and the firm is very sensitive to those, so they want to make sure that uh, they're following the local laws so they're not um, 
so they can continue doing business. A violation of those laws can, can lead to um, a couple years of not being able to do business in that particular state. Other controls that they have in place is around recruiting. Um, and I'm sure you guys have heard a lot of the, uh, or seen a lot of the articles out there around recruiting processes. They want to make sure that if a candidate is referred into our, our firm, that um, they know who's the, who is the referring party. So is it from a, a government official? Is it from a potential customer or, or a current customer? Uh, they want to make sure that candidate is really qualified for the role. And if they do get the role, um, there's usually some conditions on their employment as to their reporting line and um, potentially on their job roles and responsibilities. Another aspect uh, from an employee perspective, there's a lot of email surveillance that takes place, so um, or electronic communication surveillance, I should say, which would include emails are monitored, text messages, chats, social media. Uh, so there's a lot of inward looking at what's happening in, inside uh, a firm. Another aspect, since onboarding our employees is very important, we are also concerned with how we onboard our third-party service providers, any vendors or suppliers who we're doing business with. We want to make sure that there's uh, do appropriate due diligence in place, there's appropriate anti-bribery and corruption language within the, in the contract, and when we make payments for services or goods that are provided, we want to make sure that it's in line with the contract. Um, as well as we're receiving the actual goods that we're paying for or the services that were provided. So with all of this looking, we also have to run um, with performing risk assessments because we're always concerned with making sure we're able to identify any emerging risks so we can build controls for that. Um, any legal or regulatory developments, um, and then be able to take remedi remediate, remedial action as required. Um, so with that, right, we also have internal and external exams going on all the time, making sure our programs are working properly, and um, they're also um, helpful if they identify any material gaps, then we have to certainly take action to remediate. From a customer perspective, um, we have a Know Your Customer process which is the onboarding of a customer as well as the periodic review of a customer. So when the customer is onboarded, they um, will go through different levels of due diligence depending on the type of customer they are. So for example, if you're a sovereign wealth fund or a hedge fund versus uh, an individual who's a U.S. citizen, they're going to um, need appropriate documentation to identify the beneficial owners that are attached to an account the, and any connected parties that are involved. And all of those parties who are associated with an account will go through uh, news screening to determine if there's anything negative out there that could uh, pose a reputational risk to the firm. Additionally, these searches will also help us identify any PEPs or close associates because that will also drive how we risk rate our clients. So all clients receive a risk rating at onboarding, and that will determine the level of, of ongoing due diligence required for that client as well as the amount of surveillance that we will perform on that client. 
And that, I would say, is our controls. Terrific. And uh, then let me skip to Ken Hurwitz, who's the Senior Managing Legal Officer on Anti-Corruption at the Open Society Initiative. Ken's work targets high-level corruption, particularly corruption fueled by trade in natural resources, using the law to challenge those who pay or receive bribes in exchange for illegal access to resource wealth, and those who assist by holding the proceeds of corrupt dealing. His anti-corruption work also addresses commercial trading in resources that fuels conflict and often terrorism, including developing litigation to prosecute businesses Sorry about that. Whew. Now I can hear myself. Uh, how can civil society, which of course lacks the legal enforcement, uh, contribute to accountability and deterrence of corruption? And also, is there any value in spending all of the time and money it takes to uh, bring these lawsuits? And is this lost time does it make some people cynical of trying to prevent corruption and perhaps lose faith in the system? But anything else, Ken, you can educate us with. Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, that's quite a tall order. Um, well, clearly there is no one, one size fits all solution to, to the problem. Uh, and corruption comes in all sizes from grand to very small. Uh, I don't know that I feel comfortable taking Zoe's challenge to define grand corruption, but but I I do sort of think you know <laughs> I, I do sort of think of it as uh, the business practices in a capture in a in a captured state of those who've captured it, uh, and you know there's gray areas of course, but it's at the highest level and where the business of the state is as much the corruption as it is governance. Uh, and that's the kind of corruption that we try to focus on. Uh, our particular program at the Open Society Justice Initiative takes a litigation-centered approach. So we seek to bring a small number of cases that target high-level corruption in the form of what I call a tripod of corruption, the, the, the multinational or, or international corporate players that, that bribe, uh, kleptocrats who control states and, and accept bribes for uh, favors and business opportunities and resources, and the enablers, the professionals who grease the wheels of dirty commerce, the launderers, as it were. Uh, now, it's true that, that uh, government law enforcement has many tools, coercive and intrusive, and uh, we don't have them as civil society, and we certainly should not have them. We, however, do have many things that uh, give us our strengths as civil society, and I think that law enforcement in many jurisdictions, including the United States, is discovering the value of really uh, trying to cultivate relationships with civil society. As a threshold matter, NGOs or journalists who are often undertaking similar activities are often the first to uncover wrongdoing on the ground. And they can lead to, anti, to, to corruption schemes or uh, lead to whistleblowers who do. 
Civil society has a number of advantages that even sophisticated prosecutorial authorities do not. Nimbleness, area and subject expertise, a global perspective, and international links and mobility. For example, we work closely with the Department of Justice in the case that, uh, that Elizabeth just mentioned about the son of the president of Equatorial Guinea, a tiny little state on the west coast of Africa that is the third largest oil producer in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, the, pres the, the president is named Obiang and his son is named Teodorin Nyema Obiang. And there was a case that was brought in 2011 by DOJ, not by us, uh, targeting basically a $35 million mansion in Malibu and a Gulfstream jet and a notorious glove that had been from the bad tour of Michael Jackson. Uh, all of these goodies were purchased by corruption proceeds uh, from basically the business of stealing things from the Equatoguinean people. DOJ could not go to Equatorial Guinea. Equatorial Guinea does not let foreign law enforcement in, and they certainly don't let U.S. law enforcement in. With our partners, however, we were able to link DOJ up with some of the real experts on Obiang family corruption, the citizens of Equatorial Guinea, people who've been dealing with it for years. We even obtained for DOJ a copy of a the Equatoguinean criminal code, which is something, of course, that is necessary to establish predicate crimes for money laundering. The criminal code is something that is hidden. It's like a state secret in the country. Even defense lawyers have a lot of difficulty finding it. Uh, we helped turn narratives from people who are victims of the corrupt or of the corruption, and we help them turn it into narratives that could be usable as legal evidence. We also were able to explain to the public the kinds of things that were happening in the case to make the case a human story, when prosecutors really are not in a position to do that themselves. Even before the U.S. had brought this case, we, the Justice Initiative, with a partner in Spain, had initiated a money laundering case also, as it turns out, relating to Equatorial Guinea and to the Obiang family. We targeted uh, alleged money laundering of $28 million that had been transferred to a Spanish bank account owned by a Panamanian shell company that a U.S. Senate committee had concluded was most likely owned by the president beneficially. Uh, and the evidence seems to bear that out, I could say. Around the same time, in France, the NGOs Sherpa and Transparency International in France commenced a criminal case against also Théodorin, uh, in which they acted as civil party. Civil party is in, in civil law jurisdictions, although not in common law jurisdictions, a victim that can actually initiate and prosecute a case along with the prosecutor. In Spain, our Spanish partner is a, is a uh, civil party as well. Ultimately, the, 2000s in the, the uh, Sherpa case against Teodorin resulted in three-year suspended sentence and a conviction in 2017 of embezzlement, abuse of trust, and money laundering. All of the groups involved in these three cases had ways to help each other and to help the law enforcement agencies that were involved. 
we were able to share the results of our own investigations, not only with those in our own country, the, the investigators, but with those in the other countries where these cases were going on. We facilitated communications among law enforcement agencies, often testy and surprisingly confused. The NGOs were able to really smooth, smooth communications in that regard. We put out strong communications explaining the links between the cases and the importance from a policy point of view and a legal point of view. We even organized, as it happened, a global campaign against efforts by the Equito-Guinean president to blue wash, that is, use the United Nations to clean his dirty reputation by endowing a $3 million UNESCO Obiang International Prize for Science Research. In this campaign, we garnered support from activists, scientists, artists, and Nobel Prize winners, including Desmond Tutu and Mario Vargas Llosa. We also filed a complaint building on the materials from the cases we filed a complaint with the Internal Oversight Board of, of UNESCO and warned them with large amounts of evidence to be careful that the $3 million endowment was possibly, money was possi possibly the proceeds of corruption and therefore laundered money. We got some traction with that from the legal counsel at UNESCO. Eventually, after three years, in 2012, uh, under heavy pressure from particularly African uh, states, the prize was pushed through. But, at, but it only happened after a, a deluge of negative publicity for UNESCO and for the Obiang regime. The shiny PR image that Obiang had hoped to buy with his prize was long lost. And we were able to show that respected institutions can pay a very high reputational price for the hypocrisy that they show if they choose to ally themselves with and allow themselves to be used to cloak corruption and human rights abuses. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, now let's hear from Alain St. Clair who's a seasoned United Nations civil servant, presently in the peacekeeping mission in Haiti, where he works as a political advisor. And if you Google the most corrupt countries, there are 25, most are in Africa, and the stands, Kajikistan, Turkmenistan, etc. And what's the top one? Haiti. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Alain speaks today in his personal capacity, and his views do not reflect those of the UN. He's worked at the UN headquarters in Geneva and New York, and in a number of peacekeeping missions, including the former Yugoslavia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and now in Haiti. He has posited for a long time that corruption undermines democracy, and truthfully, he's the inspiration for this program. I leave it to you, Alain. Elizabeth, that's kind of you. Um, I would like to, to, to look at corruption from, a, perhaps from different angles. Um, what is the best definition of corruption from my, from, my, from my perspective is one of the best is what uh, former and unfortunately late Secretary General of the United Nations said in his foreword 
on the United Nations Convention on Corruption, which was which entered into force at the end of 2005. Let me read out to you what, what he said. Corruption is an insidious plague that has a wise, wide range of corrosive effects on societies. It undermines democracy and rule of law, leads to violations of human rights, distorts markets, erodes the quality of life, and allows organized crime, terrorism, and other threats to human security to flourish. And I think in a nutshell, that uh, indicates some of the major threats related to corruption. I would also like to provide you with a figure. Two trillion dollars a year worth of corruption. According to the World Economic Forum, it estimates that this two trillion billion wasted on all forms of corruption per year could wipe out hunger, eradicate malaria and other major illnesses, bridge the global infrastructure gap, and provide basic education to all children. So we are, it's not a trivial matter. We are talking about something which is really a danger to mankind. Let's look at different angles. Um, and I think it should, be, it should be seen in conjunction with the other important uh, agenda, Agenda 2030 which basically is about sustainable development goals. We have 17 sustainable development goals adopted by the international community, including access to clean water, access to education, access to job creation. And one of them, of the 17, there's one which I find extremely important, which is sustainable development goal number 16, which is about justice, peace, and strong institutions. So we realize from what was said so far in this meeting, in this event, that if we do not have strong, strong institutions, um, everything else will go a wire. If we do not have judges who will allocate fair trial and access to justice to everybody, and uh, mind you, corruption takes different forms. According to the UN Convention, there are 15 types of, of, of corruption, including bribery, embezzlement of funds, uh, patronage, uh, abuse of justice, abuse of authority, etc. So all this uh, will be undermined by corruption. SDG 16 is about transparent societies, it's about strong institutions, and if corruption rules supreme, all of this will flounder away, and it will undermine the very credibility of a state it will destroy the trust those who are governed have over on towards those who govern. And I think this is an extremely, extremely uh, uh, complex issue, but which needs to be taken into account. Then, as was mentioned, we have the enablers. They're not just private enablers. They're also <laughs> public state enablers. And that is another element which I would like to draw your attention to. Um, the difference between democracy and, let's say, autocracy, without any judgment of valor here. But people will tell you that in a democracy which does not provide basic services, such as electricity, road infrastructure, uh, health, basic health, education, well, they will look 
backwards towards strongmen, which were able to provide that. They were able to provide security. They were able to provide basic health. But what happens to those institutions which are hollowed out by corruption? Say you have fair elections or you have elections, but they do not produce improvement in the daily lives of people. What will, help, what will lead to that is undermining of democracy. And then, of course, unfortunately, there are cases, many cases, where democracies, well, are accomplices of dictators, where for decades they provide sustenance, abetting and aiding dictators to stay in power for decades. Well, one can expect that maybe from dictatorships or autocracies, but maybe not necessarily from good-faced democracies. But this is what's unfortunately happening. And that is an under undermining of international security and I would say of the international liberal order, which has been in place since World War II. So in other words, if you look at uh, autocracies, which may turn into democracies, by the way, I'm looking at South Korea, looking at Singapore, uh, Singapore, Lake Kuan Ju, in 1965, average annual revenue per, per person was, I think, $560. Today it's $50,000. Why? Because there was a building of strong anti-corruption anti legislation of all types, and secondly, a very strong uh, anti-corruption, let's call it general auditing offices which had a potent impact on the way uh, transition uh, business was done. It's not, uh, another example is Rwanda. And if you compare Rwanda with, uh, with some of its neighbors, uh, the, the picture is not a pretty one. And unfortunately, it is not in the service of democracy if democracy does not have, how would I, how would I call that, committed and disciplined elites. I personally prefer democracy, but uh, uh, it may turn democracy into a mockery, into a fuss. If those elites do not behave in a way which uh, allows improvement of, of, of living conditions of, of their population. And Alain, since you mentioned the sustainable development goals, I want to bring Ulysses Smith into the action because he was one of the 10 global sustainable development goal pioneers for his work to advance peace, justice, governance, and the rule of law, and we seem to have an echo. Uh, but, oh, thanks. Okay. And uh, he's a thought leader on issues of governance and the rule of law, and the president and CEO of Telos, did I pronounce that correctly? You did. Whoa. Governance advisor. He also directs the business and rule of law program at the Bingham Center for the Rule of Law. He's counsel of the law firm of Hoffman Kessler and serves as a special advisor to the UN Global Compact on Governance and Anti Corruption. He speaks and writes frequently on issues of governance, rule of law, and business and his and his are in many publications. Um, and Ulysses, do you want to tell us about the UN sure. Global Compact and also the SDG? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's great to be with such a fantastic and varied uh, 
panel. I think one thing as I was getting ready for the uh, discussion this evening and sort of looking at everyone um, who are on the panel, um, it really brought to mind the fact that, um, as exemplified here, uh, the fight against corruption is a whole-of-society fight. It's going to require actors um, from every sector and every segment of society. Government can't do it alone. Civil society can't do it alone. The UN can't do it alone. Um, and a lot of the work that I do, both with the Global Compact, with the, the Bingham Center and others, is really trying to think about the kind of counterintuitive proposition that business, uh, the private sector, can be a force for stronger rule of law, good governance, um, and the fight against corruption. I think business, for a long time, the best you could say uh, were sort of sideline observers to um, these issues that we're talking about, the issues that sort of are represented by SDG 16, um, the goal 16 stuff, corruption, rule of law, governance, strong institutions. Um, and very often the reality is um, much of the private sector were, were sort of the bad guys, have been sort of the bad guys. And representing, you know, re reflecting the fact that, you know, this is a whole of society challenge um, and that the scale of the challenge is, is immense. You refer to two billion or two trillion, I think, but your current boss, I believe, last December referred to it as a $3.6 trillion <laughs> problem. We don't need to fight about numbers, but it's big. That's the bottom line. Um, we need to really think about the way that the business community can come in and, um, and really be uh, a driving force um, for, the, for progress on these issues. Um, it's certainly a stakeholder to the kind of fair, just, sustainable future I think we all uh, believe in and really want for, for our world. Um, there are a number of organizations that are uh, involved in this, this particular work. Some of them I'm involved with. Um, the UN Global Compact is one. I think it's, uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's I think one of the oldest and sort of largest at this point um, organizations for uh, businesses that are focused on sustainability issues, not just corruption and rule of law, um, but the range of sort of the SDGs and, 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 and 10 principles. Um, there's about 10,000 businesses that I think are signatories currently. Um, I don't represent Global Compact, but I do advise them, and I am their special advisor on a couple of issues, and, and I'm involved in a few different ways. And that work um, in particular around a platform that we're developing on Goal 16 specifically, on SDG 16, is really about... Um, um, really about helping uh, businesses start to think about the, the, the relevance of their behavior towards promoting um, the broad themes that fall under that Goal 16 um, heading, which again are things like rule of law, anti-corruption, um, good governance, human rights, labor issues, and that sort of thing. Um, I also direct the program at the Bingham Center for the Rule of Law on Business and the Rule of Law, and that too is... Um, uh, about uh, working with businesses to um, to be more proactive and more on the front foot um, when it comes to um, promoting the rule of law. Um, I think there's a recognition that um, the geopolitical landscape that we all are sort of occupying right now and part of, um, many of the traditional actors that we would have looked at as defenders of the rule of law and good governance um, are in many cases absent with, <laughs> without leave and in some cases are sort of actively working to undermine um, these, the liberal order as, as Elaine uh, referenced. So um, I think in that environment in particular, um, there's a lot of opportunity and real need for, for those of us who have a stake in 
the liberal order and, and democracy and the rule of law, and that includes the business community. I mean, a key beneficiary of, of that sort of stability is, um, is international business, but also sort of at the, at the SME level as well, um, to find ways to, to be a voice in support of that. Um, obviously, the World Economic Forum has uh, the Partnership Against Corruption Initiative, something else I've been involved with. Um, there are the B20. Um, there's just a number of um, different um, organizations that are, that are working on these sorts of things. But I think the common um, element to all of these and what I would sort of, sort of close with and look forward to Q&A and, and exploring some of these themes a little bit further is, um, you know, from my point of view, um, there's an urgency about these issues. Um, we need to really be pushing forward with not just SDG 16, but you know, but but a lot of these key elements that sort of fit underneath it. And if there are ways that we can crowd in to the space, to that fight, to that struggle, um, as many actors that have the right sort of um, point of view and, and 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 philosophical posture towards it, that it's about um, sustainability, it's about justness, it's about fairness. Um, we need to do that, and that's um, a big part of what, what the work I'm sort of focused on is all about. So, thank you. Thank you, Lucy. And before introducing J.R. Malley, I just wanted to mention there's a wonderful video on the Open Society Justice Initiative with a war profiteer saying, I haven't touched menbos, I haven't touched guns, and he, the the mines which are controlled by the warlords, you know, they're digging up all of the minerals and giving them to the war profiteer who's giving them money to buy guns and such and the war profiteer takes all of the money, doesn't deposit it in Societe Generale but in an another bank. There's also a video which you may or may not have seen that's done by the woman who won the uh, Academy Award called The Last Days of Ivory. You've seen it, haven't you? You know, poaching the ivory tusks, and it, it uh, combines the attack on the mall in Kenya by al-Shabaab and the funds that they got. But there is, um, uh, you know, a National Geographic article with, uh, with poaching by the LRI and schlepping these tusks up to the John Jaweed. And the guy had it tracking on them with batteries on the ivories, but I think the batteries ran out. But, but I don't want to keep us from the important words of uh, J.R. Malley, who's with the Sentry, and they're an investigative and policy team that follows dirty money connected to African warlords and transnational war profiteers and seeks to shut those benefiting from violence out of the international financial system. And as an investigator, JR has led investigations into money laundering, embezzlement, weapons trafficking, and high-level corruption on East and Central Africa. Before joining the Sentry, he was a researcher at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies at the Department of Defense and the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, and his work has focused on illicit networks, natural resources, corruption, and security. And he's been working mainly in South Sudan, 
which you can tell us about the linkage between corruption and violent conflict there. And thanks everyone else for setting the stage. It's a really impressive panel. Um, uh, I, I've always loved the story of the, the white glove of Theodore and Obiang. Um, but not every corruption case is so spectacular. Not everything is a front page story that has a $35 million house in Malibu. We could only be so lucky to have some of the worst offenders in the world always having something so interesting to follow. Um, I'm going to tell a story of a different house. Uh, this is a house in Uganda. And I don't know who's been involved in a, a closing on a house before, but it's a fairly time-consuming thing. It can take a couple months. The story of this home purchase begins um, with a deal between a senior military general in South Sudan named Gabriel Jakriak um, and a Kenyan fuel supply company called Dalbit Petroleum. Um, Dalbit was supposed to deliver fuel to a um, battlefield site in South Sudan, but it was too insecure so that fuel couldn't be delivered. Instead of refunding the money back to South Sudan's coffers, it was refunded into a uh, bank account at Kenya Commercial Bank controlled by Gabriel Jakriak. That money was then transferred to a Ugandan lawyer named Adrian Mabiru. Adrian Mabiru's name appears on the title deed of the home purchased by Gabriel Jakriak at the same time. Um, the house is only worth a few hundred thousand dollars. Uh, it was next door to the home owned by the chief of staff of South Sudan's military at the time, Paul Malong. And I mentioned that it's time consuming to close on a house because while this was happening, Gabriel Jacques was leading one of the most horrific military offensives during a civil war in South Sudan that's been going on since late 2013. Um, it involved everything from the burning of villages to gender and uh, sexual and gender-based violence, um, driving tens of thousands of people out of their homes, um, and really, really horrific violence, um, people targeted because of their ethnicity. Um, in one of the worst episodes of South Sudan's civil war in, in Bentu and in, in uh, Unity State. In the time since, Gabriel Jacques has been placed under sanctions by the UN for his role in this violence. Um, but he hasn't really been held accountable. Uh, he, he's been able to travel to Beijing. And we reported on the, the purchase of this home with embezzled funds in, in September 2016. But the government of Uganda has not taken any action. Um, it does appear that his bank account at KCB was frozen. Um, but even in the face of this embezzlement, he is now the chief of staff of South Sudan's military. He has been promoted. Uh, th this is kind of a microcosm of corruption. It's a case involving a military official who is incredibly violent, uh, will use the, the, the tools of state and the power at his disposal in order to gain access to wealth, He'll use, he moved that money offshore with the help of pretty sophisticated network of enablers and facilitators. It went through a bank, it was denominated in US dollars, and nothing was done about it. And this is the problem my organization is seeking to solve. You know, we want to, we, we work on, on four countries in East and Central Africa, Sudan, South Sudan, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Central African Republic. And we want to use that, uh, that habit of, of moving money overseas, using greed as, as the weakness, as the point of leverage against um, the, these senior government officials that are responsible for atrocities. Um, 
there, there are quite a few linkages between corruption and violence that we see across the continent. In the countries that we work on, we use the word kleptocracy, and often we call it violent kleptocracy. In these contexts, the state is not uh, an entity that provides social services and protects the rule of law. It's the exact opposite. It often becomes a predatory criminal enterprise that is used to extract. And oftentimes we see anyone who tries to combat corruption, to speak out against corruption, to speak out against the policies of the government, they are from, subject to violence, intimidation, or, or, or even killed. Um, that's where we come in. So we're a team of investigators and, and policy analysts and illicit finance specialists that work with a, a range of partners a lot like the diversity of the panel we see here. So we work with governments, uh, law enforcement institutions, we work with prosecutors and and lawyers, we work directly with banks, and we work with media and civil society organizations to expose corruption, identify the systemic challenges, and then try and find policy tools that can be used to address, um, used to address the challenges that we find. Um, I mentioned there are a few patterns that we see. Often without exception, we see um, the role of banks. I'm sorry, there's a lot of feedback in the microphone. Is that better? All right, thanks everybody. Sorry, I'm no more cringing, hopefully. Um, so so we, we, not every bank has a robust compliance regime like the one that we just heard about from, um, from April. Um, we often find that there are direct attempts by state actors to overtake the financial sector. We recently published a report called Covert Capital on the Democratic Republic of Congo that exposed how President Kabila, um, the, the former president of the DRC, and his family tried to acquire three separate banks. Um, a bank that the, the Kabila family does own, we found, was laundering the proceeds of corruption and laundering money for um, Hezbollah financiers. So we often see a direct link between corruption and other sorts of security issues. Um, we often see the use of shell companies. I mean, I can tell you as an investigator, my worst enemy is a shell company where you can't find the beneficial owners. It has obstructed, you know, most of the cases that fall flat where you can't do something about it. It often is because you can't say who owns a company. It's, it's, it's really a big challenge, and I, many, of you, many of you in the room have probably faced a similar challenge or seen something similar. Um, so our work tries to reveal those systemic challenges, but we also want to find tools and we want to calibrate our investigation and the collection that we, we, we do in order to, to use those tools. So we want to know from folks like Ken, what's the threshold of evidence that you need in order to take action uh, in, a, in a criminal or civil case? We work directly with the Office of Foreign Assets Control to identify you know, what, what types of conduct do you need to see in order to use sanctions. Um, and we you know, advocate using sanctions not just as a punitive tool, but as a way of building leverage in order to, to enact systemic change and to address the, the conflicts that we're, we're seeing. We work directly with the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network at the Department of Treasury um, to try and identify types of conduct that may you know, be consistent with money laundering indicators so that you know, banks can be notified what types, of, what types of conduct they should really be looking out for in some of these conflict zones that we're talking about. And finally, we, we do work directly with banks. So we work with some of the biggest banks in the world to try and go directly with them. And we find that some of the bigger banks, they want to be the good guy often. So we, we, try, and, we try and show them the types of conduct we're seeing or, or specific transactions, and, and we find they, they, they are pretty responsive, and um, we've developed some relationships with them. 
And then we, we often go directly to the press and to the media with our findings um, to try and make it so that you know, the world can see and the citizens of the countries that we're examining can see the actual toll corruption is taken. Um, you know, and I mentioned the, the horrible conflict in South Sudan um, as an example of sort of what happens uh, when, when a kleptocracy becomes violent. Uh, but the, the challenges really extend far beyond uh, the borders of South Sudan. Just about every physical security challenge that you can think of is made worse by corruption. Maritime piracy, terrorism, you know, wildlife poaching, anything that would become worse by someone being paid not to do their job, that's a corruption security challenge. Um, so I'll stop there. Thanks. Thanks very much. Open it up to questions from you all, if you'll state your name, any affiliations that you have, and let me take three questions at a time. And if there's a specific person on the panel, I know you have your hand up. And yes. Uh, my name is Joanna Meyer. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Uh, I think it was 2016, it might have been earlier, that Global Witness did this great report where they went into all these law firms. And they were, you know, they were obviously, they, they, they sort of gave off a lot of indicators that would suggest that they're foreign corrupt actors. Um, the majority of the law firms, or the people in the law firms, did and said the right thing, but several didn't. Um, and I think that there has not been enough work done, but that's the, the stream is changing. There's now, like, increased concern about the role of what we call Western enablers whether it's the lawyers, the accountants, the publicity firms, the think tanks um, that are facilitating uh, either whether it's reputation washing or setting up um, these shell companies or all sorts of vehicles that enable um, money laundering and, 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 and reputation washing, which go sort of seem to, um, the bigger the kleptocracy, the more likely you're going to see them here in the United States lobbying to, to clean their, their reputation and so forth. There's been some great work done by FinCEN um, to really identify these actors, and we, Transparency International and many others, uh, really are pushing for them to be better resourced, have you know more funds to do what they do well. Um, but there needs to be more work at the policy level to target Western enablers. And so all of these... You know, TI has been working on this for 25 years, and now we're really focused on the Western enablers like we haven't been in the past. So I think there's m momentum, um, and I do think the Corporate Transparency Act is, is critical um, because it's going to put, you know, be another step forward. But uh, other than the change in discourse that we're starting to see by policy advocates, um, I think there's still a lot of work to do. the fisheries situation, particularly in Western Sahara, or? Okay, fine. And I should say, the, the panelists having some priority, are there any questions they would like to ask? I'm sorry. There was a question about the Trump in the White House. Oh, 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 yes, and your question, which I didn't quite hear. Does anyone want to answer that one? Okay. 
I would just say, uh, I guess on, 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 on Trump, and, and there may be others that up here that can speak to this a little, a little bit better than me, but um, you know, my sense of it, it, you know, leaving sort of the Trump administration to the side for a second, um, there are a number of interesting things happening in Congress around beneficial ownership. I think it might have come up earlier. Someone might have referred to it. There was actually a hearing, um, I believe, in the Senate last week, and there's um, video. It's well worth the watch. Um, online um, with a number of really interesting sort of people giving testimony and um, you know that stuff I, I don't really know what its prospects are but you know I think it's sort of chugging along um, which would be a key um, piece of legislation basically just sort of um, you know it, basically trying to keep shell companies from being able to hide their their owners their ultimate beneficial owners um, I also have a, an, an impression that you know notwithstanding the ultimate leadership that the, the, the DOJ, um, you know, and that others in in the current government are moving forward with um, a lot of uh, a number of you know prosecutions. There's the one MDB stuff that's happening, you know, with Malaysia. Um, so, you know, we have the the Magnitsky Act that's just sort of fairly recently. I mean, since the Trump administration has come into law, and things are being sort of you know moved forward on that. So, I guess. You know, my sense of it is, is that it's not, um, you know, uh, there, there is a, there's, there's reason for, you know, sort of having a positive view on, on what's happening in terms of, um, of prosecuting these things. I do have a little bit of familiarity with the Western Sahara and the fisheries um, um, situation. I wasn't totally sure I understood, you know, you're talking about because it's the EU. I mean, I think there are individual states and individual companies, actually, um, that are, um, being, or have been investigators sort of subject to legal action in, in different places, I think, in the ICC and others. Um, so I don't know if, if, if what you're getting at is that somehow you would have to sort of take on the European Union as a whole or, or a block. The EU makes the fisheries um, pillage possible. Um, and I read a paper that said that um, if, if, if a, a country, if a member state recognizes what the Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Spain, I think there have been some actions that have been pursued in Spain and, and a couple of other countries as well. So. First had something to add and then Ella. This is in, 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 with respect to the legislation. So you have the, both in the House and the Senate now, you have two bills for, which is what I referred to at, at the beginning around corporate um, transparency, which are pushing for making beneficial ownership uh, requiring uh, you to register the beneficial ownership when you're trying to incorporate. Um, this bill, for the first time, has left committee and is now going to the floor, and that happened uh, just a week or two ago. And there's been the hearing he mentioned, I think, was a, from the banking committee, and, and, and the work on this has really been led by the FACT Coalition. TI is a member, but the FACT Coalition has been using, working on this for 12 years. And as I mentioned at the beginning, what's really striking is that the only um, major opponent to this now, because the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has now gone neutral on this, is the American Bar Association. So this is something we'll be pushing on. But I really would encourage you to look at um, the FACT Coalition's page. There's a lot of, we have a lot of information. We have 
you know, lawyers like Matthew Stevenson from Harvard and many others, the International Human Rights Committee, I don't know, remember what all your committees are called, is, is working again to change the policy. The banking committee is working to change the policy. There's a lot of really great folks at the ABA who are working very hard to change this policy, um, but there will be uh, a lot more to come on, on trying to turn over their op opposition to this. And if you want to look at the why, their arguments are not well-founded. So <laughs> I don't even want to go into it. I'll just get mad. But um. I want to say something more of a general nature. Um, <clears throat> I think we are living in a period of, uh, how to say, remember that movie which said, greed is good. And I think we have not uh, come out of that period. So if you want to, to give wealth or the accumulation of wealth when, under whatever reason uh, is importance, in, in, in inordinate importance, then it's just, I believe, not enough just to address uh, legal aspects. You need to address also society as a whole. Uh, what is important in a given society? Is it really to be wealthy? And uh, the different ways of, 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 of becoming wealthy, legal and other less legal manners, or is it about service to the community and to put a community and the good of community in the forefront. It seems to me there's also a moral and ethical debate to be had, not just at the level of Congress, or not, that's, uh, not just in this country, but in a lot of uh, democratic and, and other countries. What is important is it is wealth really the, the foremost important aspect of it and the external attributes of it? Or do we all of us need to think and afresh about what we want to have uh, in, in life? Concerning uh, uh, Western Sahara, I just would like to draw your attention to, you know, the European Union as a block is divided because there are those who are more leaning towards, uh, say, Morocco and, uh, and others more lean towards the Frente Polisario and, and uh, its allies its state allies, and of course it will have uh, repercussions in terms of economic development and economic uh, preferences, uh, also with regard to phosphates and regard to uh, overfishing, because there are some areas which may be overfished in that part, it's not quite clear, but this, uh, since this is still disputed territory, international law, uh, the outcome is not yet uh, clear. <laughs> Thank you. To your question, I'm sorry that didn't address it, uh, is we ought to address local corruption here on your home loan, a possible foreclosure, and April, you can address it, and also Zoe. I actually didn't understand the question, so I wanted to understand what issue you had, and I believe it was about a foreclosure. So at the bank that I work at, we don't offer retail banking and we don't offer any type of loan-related activity as such. Um, so, so for me to respond on, on, a, on a retail type account is very difficult. We actually did that. So that's those investigators to help me, the open society and this violence. I was loving this society. I can respond. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sure, I can respond fairly generally. So I think all corruption is local corruption, just like all politics is local politics. 
someone is gaining and someone is losing. And I'm sorry for your, your situation. Just a couple of general notes on if you are a victim of corruption or if you do see corruption, um, you know, knowing your rights is, is the first thing. Knowing the law, knowing who's in your corner, um, and then understanding whether or not you're, you're dealing with a systemic issue. Uh, and I think, you know, in your case, I would recommend, um, you know, really digging in and trying to find the specific organizations that work on the type of fraud or, or corruption that you think you're seeing. You know, my organization works on financial crimes in East and Central Africa, so that's pretty far from our, our specific expertise. But, but that's my general recommendation for a framework of how to respond. And I'm happy to provide some other recommendations after the panel's over. I think to JR's point that it should be escalated within um, Wells Fargo to their fraud department if you feel like fraud, ha if you've been taken advantage of, which it sounds as though it, it may have. I just want to, this is something I'm not speaking as, well, so I've actually heard about other people going through what you're going through. I've, I've heard this story, I, I don't know whether it was on National Public Radio or on uh, WNYC, but exactly what you're talking about is part of a larger phenomenon. And my, get, and my understanding is that the problem is it's legal and, and half of what, you know, not all corruption is illegal. And the reason it's legal is because, you know, government regulatory capture by the interests of, you know, special interests around doing this work. And that's the kind of challenge that I think um, to capture that information, it's, it's almost the, the problem is a policy problem and the problem is that you guys don't have a voice. You're becoming a victim of, of, of uh, lending practices that are very predatory and this is old, this is an old history in this country. And so what you're really getting at is quite a systemic problem about the very legal corruption in, in this country. Well, you're in a room full of lawyers, so I would hope an actual lawyer, because I'm a cultural anthropologist, <laughs> can provide her with some guidance. I mean, there must be legal aid centers in New York, because it sounds like you need an independent yes. legal aid center, and I don't... And, but your other point is one that I think is also important, which is in the U.S., we don't... I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, I don't know if you were here, that we have these legal aid centers for victims and witnesses of corruption around the, around the world. Um, and they do very well because people just have lost trust in their public institutions to take their information and to really, um, uh, you know, investigate, uh, prosecute, and adjudicate free of corruption. Um, I don't think that the U.S. has a clean bill of slate in that department, and I do think that there needs to be a stronger, pre like, stronger legal aid for victims and witnesses of corruption in this country, and that that's something I hope that Transparency International, other organizations can foster going forward because we're just getting reset up in this country. Society down in Park Place, you might bring that situation to. And if there are any other questions from the yes, sir. And you are. Thank you. My name is Jean Paul Shakar. Yeah. I was born and grew up in the so I am very familiar with the reports and very interesting reports with uh, wealth of information. 
talking about the central project. Uh, my question is from uh, corruption victims' perspective. Uh, and I have two questions, one for Jay uh, Nelly and another for uh, Open Society. Okay. When you publish, when you do investigations and publish reports about Kabila's uh, corrupt network and all of those people doing business in the country, uh, my impression, and I may be wrong, maybe you are correct, is that people on the ground, those who are victims of corruption, are not at the same level as us in, in terms of understanding the danger of corruption, the impact of corruption on their lives. And they seem, and I, and I think it's the same in South Sudan, they seem preoccupied by the daily lack of safety and security. And you will see like in Congo, uh, right before Kabila left power, People were focused on him really. They didn't care about who comes and what he does. And I think even today when you see the discussion in the country, there is very little discussion about the change in terms of governance. So my impression is that we are going into we are going uh, in this at different levels and we may be spending time on on, on investigating, but at the end uh, not going to have any impact that um, The answer is mixed and, the, and it's unsatisfactory. Um, in the Obion case in France, uh, there was about 150 million euros that was in value that was seized and a fine. And French law did not actually have a provision that would allow that money to be used for victims. The French law provided that because it was dirty money that had violated the French financial system, the money was forfeited to the state. That case, however, to the French state. And, but that case, however, precipitated legislative change. And they've actually passed a law that provides that the money should be going to a fund that would benefit the victims of the corruption or that would uh, be used to fight corruption, to strengthen measures to fight corruption. In the United States, there's a somewhat similar matter. Uh, the United States has set up something called the Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Initiative. Which is specific, which is the provision, which is the program under which the Teodorin uh, mansion and the 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 other assets <laughs> were were taken. Um, they reached a settlement. The reason they reached a settlement is because the United States law is in a very complicated situation. When money is forfeited to the United States, in other words, the United States prosecutes and seizes the proceeds of, of crime, of corruption or other crime, under the Constitution, that goes to the Treasury. And money cannot leave the Treasury without an act of Congress. So essentially, we're in the same position as the French were until very recently. Now, they have gotten around this generally by reaching settlements with the, par with the parties that they've been challenging the title to and they did that with Teodorin. So they actually agreed to set up a 30, 
$30-35 million fund that is supposed to be used for the benefit of the people of Equatorial Guinea. And it has all sorts of rules that are designed to make sure that the money does not go to benefit the, the clan that stole it. Now, there's, dis, there's unsatisfactory things about all of this. The, Equatorian, the, the Teodoran money has not gone back to, to, uh, to Equatorial Guinea. There's a couple reasons for that. One of which is it's very hard to spend money to benefit to the people when the government controls everything. So there have been various proposals, and we've been engaged in, law, in, 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 in advocacy with the Department of Justice and with Equatorial Guinean civil society. We've advocated, for example, that you probably can't return the money to people in Equatorial Guinea, but one thing you could do is set up a radio station, a satellite radio station, which would be the first independent electronic media in the country, as a proposal, as an idea. The provision that they reached was that the, the, the Equatorial Guinean government and the United States government would agree on a charity that would return the money. The Department of Justice has, for various reasons, had a lot of difficulty reaching, not, not reaching agreement, but getting Teodorin and the Equatorian government to engage in this process. And we've been urging them to go back to the court and say, listen, you've got to call them out and say that this is wrong, that they're not taking the process seriously, and you have to, and there are other me mechanisms that the court could order. We're hoping that will happen, but we don't know. A better example, and just an example, uh, was something in Kazakhstan where there was a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act seizure of bribery proceeds that were paid by an American oil company for oil rights in Kazakhstan were paid to the president, essentially and $115 million was found in a, uh, in, in a Swiss bank account. And the case was being prosecuted in the United States. And Kazakhstan looked at the bank account and said, oh, that's our money, it's, it's a government money, it's, it's, it's okay, don't worry about it, we'll just take it. And the Swiss in the United States managed to agree and say, no, no, we've, we, we've concluded that that is proceeds of crime but we want to return it to the people of Kazakhstan, but we don't want it to be stolen again. And they managed to come up with a solution, which is they set up a foundation, a tripartite found, controlled foundation with basically founders that were a Swiss, a American, and a Kazakh representative. So the Swiss in the United States had the majority control. They appointed a board, and they set up a foundation that was actually using that money to provide medical services for prenatal care, to provide educational scholarships, and to provide in, uh, basically cash transfers for, for young mothers. And by all accounts, it was a well-carried-out program. It was, a, again, it's $115 million or so, the amount of money that is actually recovered, never mind returned, at this point is still a tiny percentage. I think it's 1%, actually, of what they estimate. You're talking about trillions of dollars, and we're talking about billions, but over 20 years, 25 years. 
we're at the beginning of this process, so we can't really, you know, uh, pat ourselves on the back and say that we're doing well. We're not. Uh, several hundred million dollars, almost a billion dollars, has been returned to Nigeria from Sani Abacha, and a first tranche of that money was basically stolen, it seems. More recent tranches seem to have been actually, with the involvement of civil society organizations, is being used to distribute to the very poor in various kinds of programs in, in, in Nigeria. So I would say it's a very active area of activity and thinking and, and advocacy. And it's not a problem that people don't recognize. Uh, but it is a problem that is that continues, and, and, and we're starting. And you, I'm sorry, Jr. Did you? Thanks. Thanks for the question. Um, so, so raises a really good point, um, and it's why I think a few members of the panel have mentioned really just the crucial importance of civil society. Um, and the press in in the in combating corruption, um, and yeah, journalists and NGOs are often on the front lines collecting and you know discovering and investigating corruption, and can often do so more nimbly than than law enforcement and some other organizations. But the other side of the coin is people have to know about it, um, and that's why I, you know I think most most of the folks in the panel and that work in civil society. We, we engage pretty significantly with um, the press and with local media institutions to really try and disseminate the message. Uh, a challenge is that, you know, when we released our report called War Crime Shouldn't Pay about corruption in, in South Sudan in September 2016, a South Sudanese newspaper ran the report as an issue of their, their paper the next day. That newspaper was shut down the following day. Um, and that's not unheard of. I mean, and it's not unheard of in, in the DRC for journalists to be harassed, intimidated, or, or detained. Um, in terms of people knowing about corruption, even if even if it's not, you know, it's it's not always a bribe, right? But I think people have a very clear understanding that civil services are, are fairly non-existent. That getting through checkpoints and having to pay bribes to police just to to you know run your daily commute sometimes in, in certain places is is a challenge that I think people understand. But there's also the need to communicate that not all the corruption is happening in Congo, right? A lot of, a lot of the plumbing for this corruption you know, enterprise is, is taking place outside of the country. So there's, there's an equal important imperative of engaging with civil society, the press, stakeholders, events like this to, to make sure people know, well, yeah, the international financial system and, and, and foreign investors and, and so forth play a really key role in perpetuating these challenges and, and awareness needs to be raised in, in that regard as well. Thank you very much. Perhaps just one additional element of information. Uh, in 2017, the Congolese parliament passed uh, legislation regarding national payment systems, which is basically about increasing transparency of monetary fluxes, basically from taxation and then distribution thereof. Um, I think that is an important act of legislation, but it needs political will to be implemented. It's at the level of the central bank. So the legislation is there, and it needs support 
uh, from civil society, including religious uh, faith-based groups, as well as the private sector. So maybe, maybe it would be one of the elements to be pursued with civil society because they were also very much in, in, in favor of adoption of, of such legislation. It took 10 years <laughs> to have this piece of legislation adopted, and I think it's, it's there. It can be developed at the national level. It can be developed at each of the 26 provinces of the DRC. But it needs also to be followed through by uh, those who would like to see uh, uh, improvement. From what I heard from some colleagues and friends, it was partially implemented in parts of Bakongo, Congo Central province. And within six months, uh, the, the, the increases of taxation were doubled. So if that kind of ideas would, would be pursued, uh, irrespective of uh, other considerations, I think it should be looked at um, together with the private sector and civil society to see if, and parliamentarians to see if it could, be, it could have a future in, in Congo. Thank you. Thank you. And other questions from the audience or panelists? Do you want to ask any of your other panelists' questions? Well, if, yes, yes, sir. For Dr. Reschenko, former attorney in New York, with the Board of Authority in New Jersey, I was wondering, in terms of these shell companies, I guess, like, in fund formation, there is all this know-your-customer business, and I guess, obviously, this subdivision has, you know, control. So, obviously, like, these shell companies can't get very far, but... What do they do with the money? Like, I guess, is there like a whole financial sector where you can just kind of like pump a couple billion dollars? I had a thought on a bunch of things. Okay, all right. So, I'm um, <laughs> Thank you for bringing up the uh, Lava Jato case and the Odebrecht scandal, just is a scandal that keeps on giving more insight into um, really massive corruption. And, and one of the things I think Lava Jato, so much. It, it, so many things are important about that case. Is everyone familiar with it? Okay. So, number one, how are you going to prevent future lava jatos? Well, you have to think about what are the honeypots of corruption, and one of the major honeypots of corruption is large-scale infrastructure projects. There's a lot of great work being done by Transparency International, by Open Contracting Partnership, by many organizations to really mitigate the potential for... Um, basically bribing your way or uh, into winning contracts and all the corruption that comes at the tail end of contracts, all the many ways in which the, you know, this, you can, you know, ta really tackling corruption in, in public infrastructure. And for me, that's a priority that we should not lose sight of. Um, now, Lava Jato teaches you a lot about the means and the tactics, and it's always related to political financing. So, you know, we have a large body of, of, of work on money and politics, and yet that is the hardest area to make any real progress on. Um, you can see that here in the United States. So working and tackling and trying to figure out what are sort of, in, you know, there's a real question of which can we have international standards of transparency in, in political finance. I don't have the answer to that, but I think that's... That, making political finance more transparent is going to be important. But I think you can never really lose sight of the honeypots. And in terms of honeypots of corruption, it's large-scale infrastructure. Lately, it's foreign influence peddling. 
right? That's not right. Uh, you know, corporate tax breaks of, you know, large proportion. Money laundering is both a means and an end of corruption. So you really have, we have to understand it in those terms. Um, but some of the great things about Lava Jatu was the previous, you know, what you're telling me is so concerning is because you had actually a strong investigative and prosecutorial arm in the justice system that was working. Um, Transparency International has recognized the body of prosecutors um, for their great work. And it's, the problem is that there's always going to be a backlash. You get good at tackling uh, corruption in anonymous companies. Money launderers are going to start working through, like, mom-and-pop churches, and we're actually starting to see that. Like, we're starting to see that in Latin America. Um, political financing going through mom-and-pop churches. So there's just, there's no, there's no bullet, but you have to keep your eyes on the, on the honeypots. The, the means will always change. That said, the number one I keep saying is anonymous and, like, really we need beneficial ownership transparency. In the U.S., we're just asking to make it uh, transparent to law enforcement, not even public registries like we have in the U.K. Um, it's a small lift, but we have to start there because without that, there's so much that we can't do. And I think everyone here has made that clear. mentioned a model. To, to me, I mean, just... Uh, from the figures, maybe one should have a look at what happened in Singapore. I'm not saying that it is uh, perfect by a far stretch, but there are some figures which... Uh, over, it, it is about disciplination of the elites. It's about uh, commitment of the executive, judiciary and the legislative towards a common goal. And maybe, maybe that in a, in a country as diverse as Brazil, as huge as Brazil, with so many differences between the north and the south and the southeast, maybe maybe there are some states which have a better record, track record than, than others. Maybe, first of all, drawing on, on positive experiences from within Brazil, but maybe also looking at some other more, uh, perhaps more simple uh, cases, like, uh, like, like simple and complex at the same time. Than, than, than Singapore. Singapore at the beginning, in the early 60s, was governed in part by the triads, by the Chinese uh, 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 criminal organizations. And I think somehow uh, the influence was, 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 it seems, reduced. But the figures are there. And I think that could be one possibility. The other one is, is South Korea. I mean, uh, within one generation, uh, it's now, I think, the eighth economic power uh, in the 1950s, it was plagued by corruption and by, by, by uh, it was a dictatorship, basically, very unsatisfactory, <laughs> unsatisfactory ways of, of economic development, but it changed in the, as of the 60s, in part, by the way, due to the war in Vietnam. Uh, <laughs> so there are those elements which, which need to be taken into account. Secondly, concerning uh, Jerome, uh, concerning your... I mean, I may be a little bit optimistic here. Maybe it's much di more difficult than what I would like, but let, let's be bold. For me, a massive state corruption, if it can be positively linked to the commission of international crime, war crimes, if, I, I, for me it is, it is the enabler of everything else. Massive state corruption could perhaps be judged, uh, submitted to international jurisdiction. 
perhaps something like uh, an international criminal court or one of its uh, sub-courts. Uh, I think one needs to, to think large here. Thank you. On, on, on two of the strands, one, one of which is, is there a special economic sector for money laundering, which, which there is, essentially. Uh, but it, it's a moving target. Uh, I think what happens is that there are jurisdictions that have very high standards, jurisdictions that have lesser standards, jurisdictions that are sort of on the border. Jordan's, you know, so Mossack Fonseca was mentioned in Panama, which is a dollar economy and therefore has an appearance of somewhat more legitimacy. And after Noriega was overthrown, was more of a rule of law, but obviously not adequately and not sufficiently. Scottish limited partnerships and New Zealand companies uh, became a common vehicle because people said Scotland must be honest, or New Zealand must be honest. They're English speaking, for crying out loud. Um, and for a long time, they could get away with it. And then after a while, the red flag started to come up. So it's a moving target. But I think you go from the economy is in the, in the, con the country, jurisdictional situations where they're sort of on the border. And of course, when you're talking about the former Soviet Union, and the space in Eastern Europe, Estonia, it's no coincidence, Estonia and, and Latvia have been major, and Moldova uh, have been major centers. They're in the EU, but, so, so, so that's how, how I would see it in answer to that question. On the question of what do we really want, I mean, I, I do think we keep coming back to the question of beneficial ownership, but one of the real issues that People, those of us who advocate for that, ha have not taken quite as seriously as we need to, is how do you enforce it and how do you verify it? And the UK system, which is very nice in theory, has been shown to be terribly inaccurate. And, and nobody's, it's getting better as we're told. Um, but it's real resources. It's a question of resources, obviously with computer technology and artificial uh, machine tech, you know, information technology, you can check these things. And, and I'm sure you, you know much better than I how they would do that. But it's a question of commitment. It's a question of political will. Just as enforcing crimes is a question of political will. So I think a serious beneficial ownership system that really is monitored and where there's serious sanctions for misrepresentation is what we want. And we don't have that yet, I would say. The, the, the very last thing I wanted to say, I'm sorry for hogging, but I was silent before. Um, on the question of Brazil and the, and the question of the, the pushback, um, there was a very, in, there, there have been some studies, but, but surprisingly few that actually seem to, to uh, associate things with, anti, with uh, improvements in the corruption situation. South Korea, which, which Dennis mentioned, um, is an example. There, there is a study that uh, basically highlights the impact of longer-term changes. And while the rule of law does not necessarily cure corruption, it is definitely something that you can't cure corruption without. Uh, in South Korea, one of the things that was pointed to in this study, and I don't vouch for it except that I read it, uh, was land reform. Land reform created a whole different set of constraints and of economic interests and of powers, and people started having a stake in the, the law to protect their land rights. 
Uh, Taiwan was also similarly described as land reform having been a, a very key element. Um, in Costa Rica, the, an element that was mentioned was the establishment of a constitutional chamber in the Supreme Court that allowed for more express enforcement. But, this, but, but the example, the, the study that, that, that most impressed me that I've read, and I'm no expert on this and I'm no academic, uh, was about Italy in the 90s and, and the period in, pre, in period 90 to 92 or 93 when there was a huge and very successful and very popular anti-corruption initiatives in Italy, particularly in southern Italy where it was most rampant. Uh, and there was lots of popularity, and people were really excited about it. And then Berlusconi ran for president and won in 1994. And the mystery, which is kind of similar to what I think we saw in Brazil, how could that happen? How could people vote for corruption? And the analysis that I read is basically said, look at it as game theory. People are looking for a stability, and people recognize that when everybody is public-spirited, or at least when everybody is reasonably honest, that's the best kind of stability. People benefit more if we all accept that we're acting in good faith. If we all assume that the people are being cynical and that everyone's corrupt, at least it's predictable, at least it's, it's a stability. The worst is when you don't know where you stand, and that's what drives people back into the old world, even when you see steps taking. This is very persuasive to me, and, what, and one of the things that it says is that while you are prosecuting, which I strongly believe in, and while you are suppressing, and while you're doing reforms, and while you are, for example, uh, digitizing procurement processes, as they've done in Ukraine, which has significantly, apparently, reduced corruption in Ukraine on procurement, which is one of the most major areas. It's called Prozuro. Um, while, you're doing, while you're doing all the, 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 the accountability stuff and the exposing of the corruption, you have to be offering positive steps as well. You have to be offering people something that says, yeah, this is a gamble worth taking. And without that, simply prosecuting can actually put you step backwards. And I, and I fear that that may be what, you, what, what the Italian example shows, and it may be the example that La Vajato shows, is that unless you have a broader program, and it doesn't necessarily mean the prosecutors are responsible for that program, but that there is a package that people can say, I'm willing to take the risk that people will be honest, and I'll be honest too. Again, it's a theory, it's something persuasive, I don't vouch for its truth, but that's what I understand. I, I agree with everything you said, although I would say, and I've seen this in Guatemala, like, be careful of the threat of a good example because the tactics of undermining trust in the very institutions that are calling out corruption are really very powerful. And, um, and that creates a, a sense of hopelessness and nihilism as well. And thanks so much. Thanks all of you for coming. And thanks very much to the panelists.